This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to Rand. I'm Lindsay Cosberg, Vice President for External Affairs at the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker. Dr. Bruce Bennett is a senior defense analyst at RAND. He is an expert in Northeast Asian military issues who has visited the region more than 75 times during his career, studying North Korean chemical and biological weapons threats, North Korean stability, and nuclear deterrence. Dr. Bennett has conducted research for the governments of the United States, Japan, and South Korea, and he is the author of Uncertainties in the North Korean Nuclear Threat. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bennett. I'm not a podium person, so I'll step out a little bit here uh, to talk with you tonight. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here to talk with you about Korea. Korea has got a very central part uh, in my heart. Ironically, I didn't start working on Korean issues until the late 1980s, but I was lucky. My father-in-law was a professor at our National Defense University, and his specialty area was... Korea. And so when I was asked by the director of net assessment in the Pentagon in the late 80s to help him prepare a net assessment on Korea for the Secretary of Defense, my father-in-law started introducing me to his friends in Korea. Um, There is nothing like people knowing people to work in that culture. So it's been a great opportunity, and I have many, many friends in Korea, very warm relationships But on the other hand, I would have to say with regard to North Korea, I sure have a lot of concerns and doubts that are really very deep about what's developed and what is still developing. And those are some of the things I'll talk about tonight, along with what we need to do to address those issues. Because fundamentally, there are many important things we can do that we are going to need to do to maintain security and peace in that region. So let me start out tonight and say, for many of you, you probably first heard about Korea and knew a lot about Korea when uh, President Bush, in his 2002 State of the Union address, talked about the axis of evil, several countries being very bad, and he said in particular that North Korea was a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Okay, so is that right? And what have we learned since that time? Ten years now since then. What has developed? We'll talk about that. So let me start, first of all, if you take a look at North Korea in particular, it's a small country, and Koreans culturally say they are shrimps among whales. Now, it's important that that's not perceived as a negative commentary, but it's a limiting commentary, and you look at the size of the countries, just in geographic size, let alone in economic size, and you understand their concern. How is it, therefore, that they compete? Now, South Korea has done very well in that competition, but we'll talk about, relatively speaking, where North Korea is. Other kind of thing to know about is North Korea is very repressive. There's an organization in the United States that identifies the political rights and the civil liberties that countries have in the world. And you'll note some of our colleagues like Japan and South Korea do very well. But North Korea is at the very extreme of not having those rights, not having those liberties. What else do we know about North Korea? Well, The North Korean people are heavily indoctrinated, lots of propaganda. They're told lots of things about the world that aren't true. They nearly deify their leadership. They have throngs or they have have places where they can go in almost any school that are almost like chapels dedicated to the leadership. They also have a stratification system, a class system that is based upon your historical alignment as a family. If you're core class, you're in good shape. You're wavering or the hostile class, you're not in such good shape. 
And there is almost no upward mobility, but there is downward mobility. Another thing that you learn about them is there's tremendous amount of intimidation. Now, by intimidation, what do I mean? We believe that there are roughly 200,000 North Koreans in political prisons. Now, we call them gulags oftentimes. They're not quite as nice as the Russian gulags were in many cases. So these are really terrible places. And that's not counting the 150 to 200,000 North Koreans who are in prison for real criminal offenses. So a tremendously difficult situation in that regard. The North Koreans are isolated. If you buy a radio or a TV in North Korea, it has one channel. You get what the regime wants to tell you unless you can go in and adjust it. But if you get caught adjusting it, that is something that can put you into the gulag. Now, of course, also you have to know that North Korea is a relatively corrupt society. Those who are in privileged positions oftentimes get away with things by bribery and influence. And so interestingly, many of the people who we can reach are in that core class thinking that they can get away with things. They can take away the channels and reach out. And of course, North Korea has to find a scapegoat. And we are the scapegoat. We cause every single negative problem pretty much in North Korea. Air propaganda says that all the time. We're criticized as being responsible because there are a whole lot of problems in North Korea, as we'll show in a minute here. And how could the regime say, well, we're responsible for that? That would not last them very long. The important part of North Korean culture is it is a culture of empowerment. The leader has to be strong. He has to demonstrate that strength. And it is not a country with much strength. All right, what about economically? Well, you know, U.S. has got a large amount of per capita GDP, but if you look at some of our allies, Japan and South Korea, they do very well as well. But look at that huge gap with North Korea. This is not a problem like East Germany and West Germany, where the relationship was much closer before German unification and still extraordinarily difficult on unification. You know, the Germans still pay a 5% unification tax each year to deal with the cost of unification. And so many Koreans now are intimidated by this economic difference. The other kind of thing to think about economically is trade. Many people in this room probably anticipate that our biggest trade partner is Europe. And guess what? You'd be wrong. In terms of imports, the United States gets about 20% of our imports from Europe. And they're only number three. Number two is the Americas, about 25%. And number one is East Asia, about 35%. This is an extremely critical region for us in terms of economic prospects, which is one of the reasons why we continue to have troops in Korea in order to be able to protect our interests and forces in Japan as well. All right, so what about the situation in North Korea in terms of food? Well, North Korea was actually doing fairly well. Cereal production, largely rice, some potatoes, uh, corn very heavily involved in that. Basic food elements for a population that doesn't get much meat, very limited vegetables. They did very well up until the 1990s. Then came the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, and the subsidies that came to North Korea to keep them going. And then they plummeted, especially because of a series of years with bad weather and difficult circumstances. Now, how bad was that? Oh, and I should say before I say that, notice also, though, that between the UN and the Bank of Korea, there's a pretty big disagreement about what that level actually was. We don't know for sure a lot of things about North Korea. I mean, even something simple like cereal production, where satellites can tell you a whole lot about what's going on, we really don't know how much happened. And that's what is required for subsistence living, for basically eking by, not as fancy life like Americans, but subsistence living. 
North Korea hasn't crossed that line since the mid-90s. And so you get starvation. Earlier this year, one of the most senior North Korean defectors who is currently living in South Korea said that in just three counties in South Korea, opposite the, southern, opposite the airports in South Korea, but on the North Korean side, 20,000 people had starved to death this year. Those also happen to be breadbasket counties where farmers raise much of the food of the country. And they starved to death because the military took the food away. Took it for the military, took it for the people in Pyongyang. So that's the character of a lot of what goes on in North Korea. In the mid-1990s, though, they had particularly bad weather for a period, and depending upon whose statistics you, re you believe, the situation was even worse. Some people say a million people starved to death. We don't know for sure. Some of the best estimates I've seen say the number may have been as much as three and a half million. That's out of a population at the time of about 22 or 23 million. So can you imagine if it's really three million or so, one out of, or 15 out of every hundred people starving to death? That's how bad it's been in North Korea. And you might say, well, you know, it's got to be better now. But like I say, 20,000 people this year may have starved to death in just three counties in North Korea. This is a place under very severe conditions. Now think about it, if you're the leader of that country, you've got a lot to worry about because those people aren't going to be very happy. And even though thoroughly indoctrinated, they've got a lot to, to complain about. North Korea has had some demonstrations against the leadership when they... Uh, revalued their currency two years ago, almost three years ago. They traded 1,000 old won for one new won. But when they did that, they limited the amount of currency you could exchange to about $100. So that wiped out the savings of pretty much everybody. They were going after the merchant class because the merchant class had become economically powerful. They could bribe almost any official they wanted to. And the regime didn't like that. So now, essentially, we're in a situation where they've tried to wipe that out. Now, they didn't entirely succeed, but they got a long way in that process. All right, what about history? During the 1940s, early 40s, Japan occupied Korea. The end of World War II, there was a combination of allies, primarily the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that ruled over parts of Korea. Eventually, there was a degree of independence, and Kim Il-sung was anointed by the Soviets to take over control of North Korea. He had been a rebel leader during the war with Japan and had established himself as firmly in the Soviet camp, other leaders in South Korea during the time. Eventually, we got to the end of the Cold War, and then just before the famine we were just talking about, Kim Il-sung died, and his son took over. And now his son, almost a year ago, died, and the grandson has now taken over. The grandson is probably about 29. Again, how much do we know? We don't even know how old he is. In fact, between the time he was roughly 12 and three years ago, we didn't have a picture of him. It's amazing to think about the son, the potentially anointed new leader, and for over a decade, you don't even have a picture of him. Now, we think, we don't know why that's the case. I postulate it was the case because they were working on plastic surgery to make him look like his grandfather. And others think similar kind of thought. They wanted to set up a place where he had legitimacy because of his connection to his grandfather, who was extraordinarily popular. All right, what else has been going on with Korea? Well, there was the Korean War in the early 50s. We go into the 60s and 70s, interesting things happened. North Korea tried to assassinate the president of South Korea three different times. In 1983, when the president was visiting Rangoon, they, South, or North Korean special forces exploded bombs 
and killed roughly 20 of his ministers and senior staff. Now, interesting thing about U.S. influence at the time. We convinced the South Koreans at that time not to retaliate against the North because we were concerned about the escalatory implications of doing so. I don't think if the same thing happened today, we would have that same influence. We also have had North Korea do several nuclear tests in the last few years. They have demonstrated nuclear weapons. We believe they are preparing to demonstrate another one. And that's a worrisome development. Other things they've done. They build a nuclear power plant from which they reap the materials they put in nuclear weapons in the early 80s. They've been testing missiles that could potentially reach parts of the United States starting in the late 90s, but more recently they've accelerated the process. They did one in April of this year. Didn't quite work. We don't know exactly why. And they've done a tremendous number of provocations. Naval battles in 2010, sinking a South Korean frigate, also, also shelling a South Korean island, killing 46 soldiers with the warship and four persons, two, two civilians, two military personnel, when they shelled the island. So this is a country that's prepared to take extreme actions. Why do they do those kinds of things? They weren't doing those things for military purposes so much. They weren't invading South Korea. They were doing it for political purposes to prove the empowerment of Kim Jong-il. Because at the time he'd suffered a stroke, he looked weak, he had to show he was empowered given the culture of leadership in the country. All right, what about the nuclear weapons? Most people who talk about nuclear weapons in North Korea draw them roughly along the line shown here, that they've grown, but North Korea shut down their nuclear plant several years ago, so they're not producing plutonium anymore, so they're flat. They're not going to make any more nuclear weapons. <coughs> but even this line may be wrong. We have a series of stories that tell us that the numbers may have been greater. For example, here... In 1999, Dr. A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani nuclear problem, uh, visited North Korea and said he was shown three North Korean nuclear weapon kits. These were kits, he said, that could be assembled and put on a ballistic missile in about an hour. Now, we don't know if he was telling the truth. If he was, all of the speculation about whether or not North Korea has a warhead that can go on a missile Maybe just that, speculation. We don't know. But also, we can pretty well speculate from our side that if they showed him three nuclear weapons, they weren't going to show him everything they had. What happens if security broke down because they were showing it to a foreigner and the Americans found out and decided to bomb it? Culturally, they would never let that happen. So if they showed him three, I've got to guess they had at least five or six at the time. And so if we follow that logic, the numbers may be much larger. In fact, one of, our, uh, one of the experts in the community has recently published a paper giving these numbers of nuclear weapons. So, for example, looking at 2016, he says the minimum number he believes they will have will be 12 nuclear weapons, and the maximum will be 48. A lot of people talk about North Korea having onesies and twosies of nuclear weapons and so that we can intimidate them easily from using them. If this expert is correct, we're in a whole different world with regard to a North Korean threat in that time frame. And we had better be thinking our way through the same kinds of basics of nuclear deterrence that we had to think our way through with the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Now, I'm proud to say that in the 1950s, Rand had a major role in that before my time. But somebody needs to be working that kind of thing today because if they really have 30 or 40 nuclear weapons, we've got to be worried. All right, what about North Korea in terms of what they would think about using those? The most interesting story is one from 1993, published in Foreign Policy, the journal in 2008, 
It is said in that by the, the author was one of Kim Jong-il's tutors, taught him Russian. In that article, the tutor said that in 1993, Kim Il-sung, the grandfather, called together all his military people. That was the time of the first nuclear crisis in Korea, where we were threatening North Korea that if they didn't join the non-proliferation treaty, we might attack them to take out their nuclear capabilities. And Kim Il-sung asked his generals, if we win, or if we go to war, can we win? And the generals, of course, all are going, yeah, yeah, we'll win. But then he said, what do we do if we lose? The generals were really quite smart enough to know that that was not a question they wanted to answer. But Kim Jong-il, the son, reportedly did answer and said this, if we lose, I will destroy the earth. What good is the earth without North Korea? And if you start thinking about nuclear weapons, that might give you an idea of what he had in mind. Think also of biological weapons, which North Korea has also experimented with in their prison camps. And so this is a risky proposition with this country. If they stay alive, they may have to prove that they're empowered. If they start to go down, they may decide to do a scorched earth behind them. And so we've got to be prepared to deter and defeat such threats. What does it mean? One of the things we worry about is that North Korea might smuggle nuclear weapons into the U.S. or alternatively that they might proliferate them to terrorist groups who would do that. If that happened, these are roughly the minimum numbers of people who would be killed if the attack was on Disneyland. And you might say, why Disneyland? What a great American institution to attack and destroy. Wouldn't that get worldwide attention, which is exactly what this regime would be potentially interested in? So those are some rough numbers of the minimum. The maximums, of course, are quite a bit higher. We don't know for sure how large the numbers will be. With chemical and biological weapons, very sensitive to the time of day, the wind conditions, because these weapons are carried by wind. Certain amount of that is true also with nuclear weapons. So we're talking here about potentially as much as 100,000 people killed. With biological, you could be talking in the hundreds of thousands from a single weapon. All right, what could happen then? Well, we believe today that the North Korean regime is unstable. I do. Some of the experts say it's really very stable. It seems to be great. Right. Well, let's see. They killed the chief of the general staff, the senior military person, probably. At least took him out of office. Probably killed him in the purge. We just learned two weeks ago that his vice chief was executed for drinking now think about that, drinking in Korea, and he was executed? I mean, that's got to be one of the greatest excuses I've ever heard. We know that the chief of the, of the strategic rocket forces recently described in North Korea was removed earlier this year. And I have to say, if they took out the chief of the general staff, I mean, anytime you've got a senior military person, he's got colleagues and supporters throughout the military. I can't imagine that Kim Jong-un would leave those people in place. And so if those people are suffering purges, that's got to be a problem. Because purges in North Korea doesn't mean, hey, you're retired, have a great time, you got a great pension. Purge in North Korea means, well, you're lucky if you're executed and your family is headed to the gulag. Why send your family? Oh, for three generations. Why send your family to the gulag? Because they may know something about the leader. And the leader doesn't want people to know about him, some of his secrets, some of the things he has done. And so they want to isolate those people. That's not a great outcome if you're one of those leaders. In 1994 and 95, when Kim Jong-il took over, it is reported that he suffered several assassination attempts. We haven't heard about anything now in this succession yet, but we don't know. They may have already happened. They certainly may yet happen, and that is potential instability. If that kind of instability happens, it could get bad enough for government collapse. 
In a society where you're already not feeding many of your people, where your economy is in the dumps, it could happen. If it does, the humanitarian disaster is only going to get worse that already exists in the country. And of course, there is a possibility that Kim Jong-un could choose diversionary war. You know, don't attack me, it's those Americans. They're responsible for all of this. And so he could order an attack on South Korea, not because he thinks he can win, but because he's afraid he will lose if he doesn't do something like that. And there's a great literature on that kind of war. Alternatively, he has used provocations as a way of diverting attention and proving his empowerment, but the South Koreans are now saying that if another provocation like the sinking of the warship or the shelling of the island occurs, that they intend to escalate and really whack North Korea back. And of course, there is some expectation that if they do that, that North Korea will also escalate. And you can see where that might go. So it could be even a war unlike the ones that we've historically thought about, but it certainly would not be a good situation. So how do we deter North Korea? The classical deterrence literature talks about benefits being greater than costs and then you don't deter. But if we can make his costs greater than his benefits, then we do deter. So let's look at a typical case. What about North Korea's 2009 nuclear weapons test, their most recent nuclear weapons test? If we look at the benefits the regime see, saw, we see them in green. What do we make of them? Well, first, Kim Jong-il had a stroke in late 2008. He was sickly. He looked weak. That doesn't meet the North Korean leadership culture. He was therefore potentially vulnerable. Had to prove he was empowered. And so a nuclear test would potentially do that. It would allow him to prove his nuclear capability. He could claim he was a nuclear power. And oh, by the way, he would enhance his deterrence of the United States by being able to demonstrate a nuclear capability. Against that, our threat was, well, we'll do some kind of sanctions. Well, we know what's happened with sanctions historically with North Korea. Most of North Korea's trade is with China. China ignores the sanctions. They don't impose them. So sanctions is not much of a cost with North Korea. We might be able to change that at some point in time. But this is not a route to deterrence of something like a nuclear test. So what are our alternatives? As we look to the future, we potentially have the regime wanting to do more tests, more missile tests, alternatively, maybe even attacks. They want to demonstrate their empowerment. They want to claim they're very stable, that they can do this kind of thing, and that South Korea doesn't respond very strongly. They want to show that South Korea and the U.S. are the enemy, that we are responsible for the problems. So if they attack us and we attack back, They've demonstrated that. We're clearly the enemy. They want to show that they're superior over South Korea. In the uh, artillery exchange that occurred in 2010, North Korea fired about 300 artillery shells and rockets. South Korea fired only about a third that many back. Yeah. North Korea is superior. They proved it. And so that was a part of the claim. Of course, what they didn't say at the time was that literally three-quarters of their shells and, uh, and rockets didn't hit the island that they fired at. Some idea of the quality thereof. And of course, they want to claim that North Korea is a nuclear power. And there are only nine countries in the world, if you count North Korea, that have tested nuclear weapons. So if they're a nuclear power, well, they've accomplished things that whole bunches of countries haven't accomplished. That really is empowering. And quite truthfully, if you're North Korea's regime leadership today, what do you have to claim that's empowering? And your economy doesn't empower you. Your food situation doesn't empower you. Your politics doesn't empower you. Your international core, your international uh, relations doesn't empower you. Nuclear weapons is one of the few things you really have that can demonstrate that power. So what do we do to counter that? Because we want to deter it. 
Well, I've argued that one of the first things you want to do when North Korea does that is have the rock president, the South Korean president, the American president stand up and say, wait a minute, they didn't do this because they were strong and stable. They did this because they were weak. And in fact, they committed an act of war in the case of 2010's provocations where they risked escalation to a full war. That says they were pretty desperate in doing that kind of provocation. If they are that desperate, maybe we need to be preparing for a collapse of North Korea. Now, if you say those things to North Korea, that is really going to cause some division among the political leadership in North Korea. Now you start bringing a price home to the leader when you're suggesting that the outside world doesn't see it the way he does. Second kind of thing you'd like to do is to say, well, hey, if we have to get ready for a collapse in North Korea, we'll prepare to deliver humanitarian aid into the North. And as I'll show you in a moment, there are kinds, interesting kinds of ways we could do that. And we then counter the attitude that we're the enemy. If we're preparing to deliver humanitarian aid into North Korea, we're not the enemy. The regime is the enemy. In fact, you can bring that home by offering some aid now and say, hey, I know this county and this county and this county are in really bad situation. Let us bring aid up there now and deliver it directly to those counties, not to the country as a whole. If the regime says no, then everybody knows who the enemy is. If the regime says yes, we start establishing relationship with the people in those areas so that we're better prepared in case there is a collapse. It's a win-win situation. Moreover, if we're preparing to deliver aid, North Korea is not superior to the South. People know the South's got food, we don't. That's not superiority. We could also do something involving Marines to protect the aid that we deliver into North Korea. Let's ask why I say Marines. The North Korean military hates American Marines, the experience of, World War, of the Korean War. And the senior defectors tell me, if you want to cause a problem in North Korea, split the regime and the military. If we threaten to deploy American Marines to Korea, we could then say, well, wait a minute, North Korean military. It was your regime's bad behavior that led to American Marines being based in Korea. It's your regime's fault. And then you split them. And the final thing we want to do is we want to say North Korea is not a nuclear power. It's a nuclear experimenter. In fact, it is a non-compliant, unsafe nuclear experimenter. Non-compliant because it's not complying with the Non-Proliferation Treaty, unsafe because we're not really sure how safe their nuclear weapons are. All right, what about delivering humanitarian aid? You have to look at the composition of North Korea. Almost nine million of the North Korean 23 million civilian population live along the coastlines of North Korea. <coughs> so if you're thinking about trying to deliver humanitarian aid over the border here, and you're trying to use, for example, the South Korean army to deliver it so that it doesn't get diverted by the North Korean army to protect our aid transfers. There are only 2.3 million people who live in that area, only about 10% of the population. You're not going to get the aid out very well. If instead you ask Marines to do it into ports and across beaches, you're reaching some 9 million people, potentially. And eventually, if you wanted to go to the full extreme, you'd have to do something like a Berlin airlift with air forces into the country. But that is a non-trivial task. It would take, in order to deliver as much food as you might need to, 135 C-17 sorties a day to do that. Just so you know, we have 120 of those aircraft total. And you're never going to be able to fly every one every day. So that's a huge number but the South Koreans do have airlines. If they chose to divert their airlines to be able to deliver that aid, they could do it. All right, so 
Essentially, we want to make the costs greater than the benefits to North Korea. We want to try to do that so that they are deterred from taking these actions. It's very important to be able to get to that kind of a point. But we can't just do it by saying, you know, I think this is how I'm going to make the cost greater than the benefits. You've got to tell them. We've got to be prepared to go to the UN or go to other places and tell them, if you take this action, this is the response we're going to make. And then, in the aftermath of a provocation, if they choose to do it, the South Korean or U.S. president can stand up and say, look, this is what we threatened them with. And so now we're going to implement it. And then hopefully we do better deterrence the next time. So what are we talking about? We're worried about North Korea blowing up into some kind of major problem. In particular, now that North Korea is working on ICBMs, that's a problem that could even come home to us. Something we don't want to have happen. Now the way we work on that is working with our South Korean ally. This is not just a case where we can cut out of the region because, hey, it's safer for our troops. We have to be supporting this alliance in order to be able to deter North Korea. It's very important, and it's something which, to me, is something that I strongly try to support. Now, I'll conclude here by saying, you know, I've talked a lot about weapons of mass destruction tonight. I'll have to say I didn't bring samples. Thank goodness. This is a serious topic, but there are things we can do about it. And I'll be happy to take your questions in order to discuss some of those things. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll have time for some questions, so raise your hands. We'll try to get to as many of you as possible. Uh, Keep your questions short so we can get to a, a whole bunch of them. Thank you. We'll start here in the front. Thank you very much, first of all. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about China. I mean, for me, looking at your slides, our ability to impact this seems limited. China's likely, and they have the same risks. A war with North Korea is going to impact them likely, too. So could you comment? Sure. The Chinese attitude has traditionally been one of not wanting to undermine the North Koreans. They have an alliance, they've tried to support them, and quite truthfully, they think they can keep the country stabilized enough so that it doesn't get into a collapse situation. Therefore, they have been unwilling to talk about, okay, what do we do if there is a collapse? How do we deal with that situation? Because it sounds like they're being disloyal, that they think a collapse could occur, and quite truthfully, that might stimulate people in North Korea to say, hey, maybe it could occur. Maybe we ought to work on it. So they've been very, very careful about that. In fact, I think it's very critical for us to watch Chinese commentary because when we see the Chinese being more and more careful as they were in 2010 about the provocations, that tells me they're more worried. We have a question to your left. Yeah. You mentioned that one benefit that we could offer is to provide food to three areas. And you said if the North Korean government turned down that food, the population would be very upset. But since the population has such limited access to information, how would they know such an offer was made and refused? And, and there we have to play the information card. In fact, a fair amount of information does get into North Korea increasingly. Some polls of North Korean defectors and of Chinese businessmen working in North Korea say that roughly a quarter of the North Korean population get at least occasional news reports from outside the country directly on their own TVs, their own radios, that sort of thing. About another quarter of the population get it secondhand. And so some information does get in, and as I argued be earlier, a lot of that appears to go to the elites, which is exactly where we want that to go. So that's good. It's not a guarantee, but it's something that we could potentially work on. I have a question in the middle. What has the six power talk achieved or not achieved so far? Can we have it continued? Really good question and a very, very big debate in the government. Um, 
the six-party talks kept a lid on things for a while. But North Korea has been expanding its nuclear capabilities over that period of time. Those projections I was showing demonstrate North Korean uranium enrichment, which is apparently going on now, perhaps in as many as four different locations. It demonstrates the new nuclear plant that North Korea is bringing online. So the six-party talks at this stage aren't stopping North Korea from doing very much. Um, there's not very few experts with whom I'm familiar believe they're going to accomplish much. For a regime that depends upon empowerment, we just don't see them being willing to give up their nuclear weapons. What else do they say empowers them anymore? We have a question to your left. Thank you. Since the demonization of the United States seems to be such an important part of the equation in North Korea, what would you say would happen should a new administration or the current administration just simply re remove the United States from the equation and withdraw from Northeast Asia? Yeah, we could certainly do that. The question is, would that embolden North Korea to do more than what they're already doing? You know, at this stage, they're doing little things, these provocations. The question is, would they escalate beyond that against South Korea, figuring that the South Koreans would back down? That would probably be, in the current time frame, a wrong conclusion on their part. But they made a very wrong conclusion when they shelled the island in 2010. As best we can tell, their conclusion was, if we shell the island, it'll be like sinking the warship. We'll separate the progressives, the liberals in South Korea, from the conservatives. Instead, they unified them very strongly. So they don't necessarily understand the conditions in the South. And that was an outcome they really didn't want. The question to the speaker's right. Yes. I think that your analysis has neglected uh, an appreciation of the situation from the North Korean point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think I would like to hear your comments about how they perceive the situation rather than how we perceive the situation. I think it's really important to understand that mm -hmm. before you can come to realistic policy, policy decisions. Certainly. North Korea is not a monolith. You know, it's like the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis where people said the Soviets would do this, the Soviets would do that. There are very different groups in North Korea, including differences by that stratification I talked about. So if you want to talk about the political leaders at the most senior level, you're going to get one kind of attitude. People in other positions, very different from that. We don't know a whole lot about the attitudes of the most senior people in terms of the trade-offs they make, the decisions they make. Some of the information I see suggests, though, that those senior leaders don't always have a clear understanding of situations. Give you one example. Kim Jong-un, the current leader, was up on the Chinese border sometime earlier this year. He noticed that a bunch of houses had roofs that looked really shoddy. And his commentary was, well, the Chinese see that, they're going to really think we're a poor country and in bad shape. And he therefore ordered his people to rip off those roofs and replace them. They had the resources to rip the roofs off. They did not have the resources to replace them. So now those houses are without roofs. So, so there are some elements of that decision-making that we know only from those kind of stories that suggests that there is a disconnect in understanding, a certain element of silver spoon character where the leader thinks he can order things without understanding the limitations that he faces. So the details we don't know a whole lot about, and uh, that's a constraint on us. Question in the back. Yes. The uh, average person in Korea, is there any influence? Is Anything that they're trying to build to maybe overthrow the government itself? Has there ever, ever been anything like that? Uh, the, as I said, the only case where we know about demonstrations or that I know about demonstrations was after the currency revaluation. Currency revaluation was a perfect storm. They removed a lot of money from the system but also created tremendous demand for food. So the price of food went up by a factor of 10 from 200 won to from 21 to 200 won in two months, 
the people were fuming. And so you did get some, some people who demonstrated. I'm sure most of them are dead at this point in time. Um, but we know that happened once. I'm sure that really worried the regime. The typical misbehavior that we've seen from North Koreans has been escaping across the border into China. And North Korea has really, really clamped down on that under the new leadership. Uh, they've been pretty brutal about it. I have a question in the middle. Yes. Yes, right here. Oh, you please. were uh, rather specific about the actions that we would take or could take mm -hmm. to deter the North Koreans, but you weren't at all specific about what actions we would be trying to deter. Mm. And in deterrence, the threat has to fit pretty much the action you're trying to deter or else it has no credibility. So could right. you be a bit more specific? Uh, absolutely. And I've tried to be general tonight in a lot of ways because of the short time. Let me take a simple example. If you ask people in government, what are we doing to deter a North Korean nuclear test? It uh, doesn't matter whether it's South Korea or the U.S., you don't see much of a response. I argue that the way you deter that kind of nuclear test is that you tell the North Korean regime, if you do a nuclear test, we are going to flood your nuclear plant area, Yongbyon, with hundreds of thousands of leaflets. And those leaflets say three things. Item number one, this is what a South Korean physics lab looks like in a university. Here's some of the kinds of physics we're doing. You'd really find this interesting. Item number two, South Korea has 23 nuclear plants. You only have one. And here's a radiation detector I'm bringing up here. You'll notice that it's not going off. You know that's not true of your nuclear plant. And item number three would say, we're prepared to give senior scientists in North Korea $5 million each if they can get to Seoul. We'll only give mid-level scientists $2 million. Now, why would I do that? Those kind of leaflets are going to stimulate people to think about defecting. In the late 1980s, we knew almost nothing about the Soviet biological weapons program. In fact, we thought they were compliant with the biological weapons treaty. Couldn't have been further from the truth. We got defectors in 1990 and 1992 who were senior individuals, and it blew the whole thing open. We knew who was doing what, where it was going on, what kinds of things, the whole thing. We need that kind of information on North Korea. So I'd like to get defectors, but I also know that even one defector would be a major hit on the face of Kim Jong-un. That is, it would be a huge embarrassment if he lost a defector after we had advertised for them. And so he would have to personally shift security and make changes and worry about it well, deterrence is all about affecting the individual that you're trying to affect, not about affecting the army in order to get to him. And so I think things like that are pretty key to it. And I can get into more detail on some of these others, but I'll take the next question. We have a question right in the front. Great. I'm puzzled. Uh, where does North Korea acquire the technical expertise. You admitted they're an isolated country. I'm assuming their uh, best and brightest don't go to Western or any university outside of North Korea. So where do they get all the technology that's required, the information that's required, and the materials that are required, like the uranium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? North Korea is actually uh, mineral rich. They have lots and lots of uranium. They mine that. That's not a problem. The expertise is a little harder. They did get some scientists who were trained in the Soviet Union on the nuclear physics side. Um, quite truthfully, I suspect that they also got some Russian scientists out of the Russian nuclear, the Soviet nuclear program. Um, there was large periods of time after the collapse of the Soviet Union when those scientists weren't well taken care of. And there was some leakage, and we have some evidence of that happening. I was in Korea two weeks ago, and I heard a story about someone who was riding a train in North Korea. And there was a Russian on the train. And uh, he said he was trying to get back home because he'd been brought into North Korea to do some physics work. And uh, uh, didn't want to stay in North Korea because the conditions weren't what he'd been promised. So, don't know how extensive that is, but how many scientists would it take? It might not take all that many. 
Um, the other thing you should know about North Korea is some of the North Korean experts will tell you North Korea's machining and other engineering capabilities have historically been at the very top of Asia. They have some hard presses, the big, huge presses. Um, they had them 40 years ago that were the biggest in Asia. So they do have some important internal capabilities. But the degree to which they've been able to sustain those with that current regime is hard to tell. I have a question to the speakers, right? Yep. So we hear so much recently about the red line in the Middle East with mm -hmm. uh, the Iranian capability. Is, in fact, there a red line with North Korea's uh, provocations? Uh, one of the experts on North Korea wrote an article in 2005 before a lot of the nuclear issues came up. He talked about all the red lines we had created against North Korea and allowed North Korea to blow through. Um, we really don't have any concrete red lines that I can tell at this point. Uh, nothing that says, if you do this, we will do that, that's big enough to put those costs greater than the benefits, which is really what the red line is supposed to do. Um, you know, if North Korea detonated a nuclear weapon, what would we do? I mean, as a simple example, would we respond with a nuclear weapon? Well, usually U.S. policy is, well, we'd be flexible in response. That's flexibility isn't necessarily putting the cost there at the right range, especially since we've blown off so many cases. Let me give you a perfect example. In 2006, October, North Korea tested a nuclear weapon. Shortly thereafter, President Bush says, okay, they tested one, but if we catch them in proliferation, they will pay a big price. So, September 2007, the Israelis discover the Syrian nuclear plant that the, the North Koreans have been building. And the Israelis bomb it and destroy it, essentially. And then the Syrians pulled it down so there wouldn't be any evidence. What did we do to North Korea because they did that? The answer is, as best I can tell, nothing. So there's another red line that was gone. Iran is almost four times as big as North Korea and a very sophisticated population generally. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking at is where do we compare one against the other? Is it in fact is because North Korea sits between Russia and China is the deterrence against us moving in? That in both cases, you've got very difficult deterrence conditions, in particular trying to prevent them, trying to prevent Iran from going nuclear and trying to slow the North Korean program. But fundamentally, in some ways, North Korea is pretty clearly out ahead of the Iranians. They've tested nuclear weapons. They seem to have uranium enrichment capabilities that are well ahead of the Iranians. Um, so they seem to be the bigger threat right now. Who knows where that will be in 10 years? We have a question in the back. Please. Thank you. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi gave up his pursuit of nuclear weaponry, and he was murdered. Mm -hmm. And if he had not given up his pursuit of nuclear weaponry, he might be alive and in, in power today. So do you think this was rather instructive for the leaders of North Korea? In fact, the North Koreans have been very explicit about that circumstance. In the aftermath of the 2003 invasion, they said if Gaddafi, if, I'm sorry, in, in the aftermath of the Libyan case, but also in the aftermath of 2003 with, uh, with, with Saddam Hussein, they said if they had not given up their WMD capabilities, we would have never invaded. And therefore, why would they want to give up their WMD capabilities? That's the thing which deters us. So... Very good point. I have a question in the front. Mm -hmm. um, two more personal questions. Isn't mm -hmm. there a brother somewhere outside the country that's been rather critical, and what's happened to him? And would you comment on the new wife of the leader, who from some of the photographs doesn't look to fit the North Korean profile <laughs> exactly? Sure. Um, Kim Jong-un, the current leader of North Korea, was the third son that we know of, of Kim Jong-il. Um, in fact, interestingly, he was the son of a woman who had been born in Japan. If that were known widely in, in North Korea, that would be a great way of uh, uh, undermining the uh, current leadership. But 
In any case, um, his older brother, Kim Jong-un, or Kim, Kim Jong-nam, was uh, discredited when he tried to enter Tokyo Disney on a forged passport in, uh, I think it was roughly 2002. Uh, he was probably discredited for other reasons than that, but that's the typical argument of how he was discredited. Um, so dad didn't like his behavior, didn't think he was tough. Kim Jong-un was reportedly like father, like son, a real nasty, tough guy. And so apparently dad decided to go with a third son. Very unusual for an Asian culture. On his wife, yeah, she is really unusual. He has really tried to use her in ways that the previous leaders, I mean, the previous leaders didn't even necessarily say they were married and who they were married to. So he has really tried to use her to good effect in his public communications program. Um, now, that hit then a little bit of a skids recently. She disappeared for 50 days. And uh, people started wondering, well, is this another purge or what's going on? She reappeared a couple of days ago, and the suspicion at this stage is she's pregnant. Uh, it is reported that she already has one child, uh, born well before uh, dad died, and uh, this would be a second child. So, But at this stage, I've not seen any indication that we really know. Question to your left. Yes. Yeah, uh, following uh, your recommendations of being more strict and forcing red lines and, and this idea of dropping leaflets, uh, I think more aggressive perhaps than, than uh, policy has been to date, you also described three possible outcomes, uh, one being collapse, another escalation to war, another a direct move to war. What outcome would these uh, more confrontational tactics, what, what would you hope to achieve? And do you see any sort of positive unwinding of this situation? But you've got several concerns. I mean, one, the situation in North Korea is miserable. And many of the Koreans talk about unification not so much because they view it as valuable to the country as it is that they can't let their brethren in the North suffer through this miserable condition and this oppression. So part of your concern is the interest of the people in North Korea in taking care of them. Um, another part of the concern is setting conditions in case it does come apart. So my leaflets to the North Korean scientists, I also want to communicate to them very different from the propaganda. The regime is telling those scientists, if you indeed are caught by the Americans or the South Koreans, they're going to execute you because you're war criminals. Well, we want to send them a different message that says, no, we value you. We, we're interested in your welfare. Because quite truthfully, if the regime ever does come apart, I don't want those people wanting to go to Iran or places like that, to terrorist groups. That's the last kind of place I want them to go. So I not only want to try to improve the situation in the North, I want to set the conditions for unification. And I want to try to stop the provocations to the extent that I can. I may not be able to. The regime's going to need them to let off some steam. Uh, but I'd certainly like to slow them down because I'm afraid at this stage that it would be very easy to get caught in an escalatory spiral. And that would mean war, and I think that's among the worst of the outcomes. Our speaker has agreed to stay afterwards because there are so many wonderful questions we're not able to get to tonight. But we do have time for one last audience question to the speaker's right. What do you believe are any prospects for reform in North Korea, particularly with China's uh, interest in hoping to influence North Korea more in that direction? And separately, do you believe that there's any opportunities to empower the North Korean people inside the country with uh, information and technology uh, to potentially try to create more pressures for change from the bottom up? Yeah. The Chinese for a very long time have been trying to tell the North Korean leadership Look, we reformed, we changed our economic system, look what we accomplished. You could do the same kind of thing. In 2002, North Korea started experimenting. What they concluded was situations were so bad in North Korea that what it led to was the officials in the country could would take bribes because they were hardly surviving themselves. And so it led to a culture of criminality that was developing in North Korea with economics starting to rule over politics. And that led to things like the currency revaluation 
the regime has been going back and forth over, if we open up a little bit, is it going to cause us to come down? But if we don't open up, is it going to cause us to come down? They face an ultimate quandary there. That is a major, major concern. I think the way we empower the North Korean people is to let them know we're not an enemy, that we are potentially a friend, we're concerned about them, and we're prepared to work with them and support them. If they continue to believe that we're an enemy, that there is no other future than with the regime, then they're not going to be empowered. They're going to stay slaves to the regime. If you want to empower them, you've got to create in their mind that there is a future. But note that if you don't do that with the elites, which is hard to do politically in the South, they're going to fight against you. And that's a fight you might not win. And so you've got to be prepared to look at the political trade-offs and be prepared to deal with the elites. Thank you very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.